This sermon was recorded at Highway Palo Alto in Palo Alto, California. If you'd like to find out more about Highway Community, you can head to www.highway.org. So today we continue a series uh, in, uh, well, it's, it's really just going through a few stories in David's life. There's a lot of stories we could look at in David's life. We're just going to look at six over the summer. Um, we call it a heart after God's heart. And as we go through the series, we're looking at a, one of the episodes of David's life and then the psalm. And in most cases, uh, even the psalms help us to know which ones David wrote in response to the event in his life. And that's certainly true as we get into the story of David and Bathsheba this morning. Now, this story is particularly difficult when we speak of David as a man after God's heart. And so it's, it's, it's actually it's difficult to put that together with uh, the, the things that happened in this uh, particular situation. In fact, it's almost uh, bizarre to think of it because more than any other episode in his life, this one really stretches the imagination to think that David was any more than a very self-obsessed and self-absorbed individual who just took what he wanted and, and exerted his power and had no interest whatsoever uh, in anything but his immediate desires. Um, and in this story, we see that David abuses his power, his power as king, and he becomes a sexual predator, an adulterer, a betrayer, and a murderer. Now, that's quite an impressive sin resume, uh, if I may put it like that. And so the question that we ask is, how could a person be all that and still be after God's heart? But it's here that we find hope, because David was human, just like us, he was deeply flawed, he's prone to dissembling, but his love for God was passionate and it was sincere. It wasn't constant, but it was passionate and sincere. And these may seem you know, mutually exclusive, but this is really the tension that all of us have. Uh, we, we love God, we want to relate to God, but yet we get pulled so many different directions uh, in this broken world of ours. David's indiscretion with Bathsheba will provide a warning for us, but also a welcome in that we'll see the insidious nature of sin, but also the overwhelming grace of God. Like David, we'll never be perfect, but we can seek after God's heart. And so to begin, uh, we're going to start with a, a clip from a 1951 classic, David and Bathsheba, starring Gregory Peck and Susan Hayward. So let's watch that clip. Perhaps you would prefer truth to modesty, sire. Before you went away, I used to watch you every evening as you walked on your terrace. Always at the same hour. Always alone. Today I heard you had returned. And you knew that I... That you would be on your terrace tonight. Yes. I had heard that never had the king found a woman to please him. I dared to hope that I might be that woman. Why are you telling me this now? Why not before? Because first, I had to know what was in your heart. If the law of Moses is to be broken, David, let us break it in full understanding of what we want from each other. No, please. I'm not finished. There are women you could send for and send away again. I am not one of them. What do you want? 
to please you. Have I not made it plain enough that you please me? I'll never send you away. If that is what you want, never as long as I live. No, David, that is not all I want. Think not of this one night, but of all the days and all the nights to come. Think if I can give you what you need for as long as you live as your wife. But you're not free. If I were free. A king is not supposed to need anything. Only a fool would suppose that. Well, then. Friendship. I had a friend once, but I destroyed him. The others who call themselves friends, I... I never see their eyes, only the tops of their heads as they bow to me. Their hands are extended to me, but palms upwards for favors, even my own sons. Will I see your eyes, Bathsheba? You will see them. And my hand will be in yours. That much is easy, David. I'm only a man, Bathsheba. I need someone to understand that. The kind of understanding that only one human being can give to another. I need someone to share my heart. The man I watched from my window was not the king, but a man whose heart is well worth the sharing. That pretty much covers it. Let's just close in prayer right there. <laughs> now we know the story. One of the things that struck me about that is that it's almost identical to the way that my wife Diane and I interact when we're at home together. It's, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, sorry, Gregory and Susan, uh, David and Bathsheba. Uh, that was just exactly wrong, and that's why I showed it, right? I mean, Everything was wrong with the way that story was presented. Um, it's not a love story. It's not an, uh, the attraction of love. Uh, the story of David and Bathsheba is really a power story. Bathsheba didn't pursue and seduce David. You know, it's, anyway, there's, leave it to Hollywood to make David sympathetic in this whole thing and Bathsheba some kind of, you know, hussy who's drawing him into this, you know. Bathsheba didn't ask for a long-term commitment. She didn't incite David, you know, just kind of wink, wink, I'm married. You know, you're going to have to take care of that. Um, really. Uh, and David didn't need someone to understand him. David wasn't worn out from everyone asking him for favors. I mean, the story is a projection, really, it's a projection of power by an emotionally beaten down an insecure despot who, in that moment, was unaccountable. David was unaccountable to God or to anyone else. And in fact, this episode that we'll see from David's life, it's a fulfillment of a warning uh, that Samuel 
offered to the nation when they demanded a king. They said, we want a king like the other nations. And, and of course, Samuel said, but God is your king. He goes, no, we, we want another king. And so just by saying, we want some human authority and human power, they actually opened up the door to what we see uh, in this story of, of David and Bathsheba. It's really a tragic fulfillment of the abuse of power and the corruption that invariably happens in the hands of mankind. So let's look at the story, beginning in 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is the real story, verse 1. In the spring, at the same time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David re remained in Jerusalem. And one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a, a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. And then she went back home. And here, you know, David was hoping for kind of a one-night stand. But verse 5, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And so this is a euphemism for sex. Uh, David is trying to, to cloud the paternity issue here. And so Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. And David was told, Uriah did not go home. And so he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and the Israel and, and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. And so Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. And in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And in it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he'll be struck down and die. And so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab. Some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. It's an amazing story of the honor of Uriah and the dishonor of David and such sharp relief throughout that story. So how did David create this mess? How did he get here? Uh, how did he find himself in the midst of all of this? Well, we're going to learn some things about sin from the story. And the first one is that there's always a setup for sin. There's a setup. David didn't wake up one morning and think, you know what, I think I'm going to, you know, commit adultery with this person and have her husband killed, right? And so there was, there was really a setup in David's life that 
set him up to begin this process that ended up in this place. David had experienced a number of personal setbacks uh, leading up to this. His marriage to Saul's daughter, Michael, (coughs) wasn't going well. Uh, In a previous story, she mocked him after his ecstatic dance when the Ark of the Covenant returned to Jerusalem. And uh, David was so excited, he danced around and, you know, his toga was flapping in the breeze or something. And so Michael said to him, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Well, the text implies that David never touched her again. He has no children by Michael. And then God had also recently revealed through Samuel that David would not be the one to build the temple. And so David had a dream. He wanted to build a house for God. And so uh, the nation had celebrated, worshipped in a tabernacle in the Old Testament scriptures, but now they're in the land. And so let's build, let's build a suitable temple, meeting place for God. But God said to David through Samuel, it's like, you know, you're a man of the sword, a man of blood, you're my warrior, but you're not, it's going to be a man of peace that builds the temple. And so we know that that eventually went to his son, Solomon. Uh, Solomon is, you know, a, a, a Greek version of Shlomo, peace. Uh, in, he was the person of peace. But David, again, was disappointed. And it wasn't that long before this that his best friend in the world, Jonathan, uh, was killed in battle. And so David had experienced uh, alienated affections within his family. There were great dreams that, were, that died, unmet expectations, And then the loss of the person that was the closest person to him in the world, David, uh, Jonathan. And so David was, in some ways, he wouldn't even realize it, that he was emotionally set up for this whole thing. And he had also set himself up by ignoring a warning in Deuteronomy 17 that was there for the kings of Israel. And there, uh, God through Moses said, don't take many wives or your heart will be led astray. Now we know that Solomon, David's son, is the one who really kind of, you know, scored in this area. He had a thousand wives and concubines, and his heart was led astray, right? But even for David, we see in 2 Samuel 3, there's a harem report, and he's got sons by six different women. Uh, Ahinoam, that was Amnon's mother. Abigail was Kilab's mother. Uh, Makah uh, was Absalom's mother. Hagith, that was Adonijah's mother. Abital, Shepatiah's mother. And uh, Eglah, his wife, uh, gave birth to Ithrium. Those names are brutal. I'm surprised we don't use those names today for our children as we have them, but a lot of THs in there. But here you've got, here you've got this, you consider that, as if you're talking about mixed families, uh, you know, uh, you've got six different, um, you've got all these stepbrothers and so forth, and we see this play out in some really difficult, horrible ways, actually, uh, in the future. And there's evidence that David wasn't just marrying for political alliances, which was very common then. And so Michael was that. So Michael was from the house of Saul, Saul's daughter. But also, and it wasn't even just for attraction, but it was also that David did this as, to make up for his own emotional loss at times. It just made him feel better. Projecting his power over women made David feel like the king that he wanted to consider himself to be. And so Bathsheba... Uh, she will be another addition to, to the king's harem. And so the setup for sin, there's always a setup for sin. And we'll talk about how to deal with these setups in a way that it doesn't actually lead to sin, 
But oftentimes when we look at some of the most difficult moments in our lives or when we feel that we have truly done something that doesn't reflect what we believe or, or who we really are, it's, we've just been set up by that and we didn't recognize it. Now we see the sequence of sin in this passage as well. The sequence of, of sin. And first of all, sin, it almost always starts small. And so David was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was in Jerusalem. He was alone. He just had time on his hands. He's just killing time. He's just sort of fooling around. And uh, it was a time of year between the rains and the harvest that the Bible says kings went out to war. And, uh, and David is not where he's supposed to be. He's slumming in Jerusalem. And one night he's walking around on a rooftop. He sees uh, into a house. And this wasn't just, oh, wow, there's a naked woman there. Um, David was actually looking for that, I think. It's more of a voyeur, a voyeur state thing here. Uh, he sees Bathsheba. She's a beautiful woman, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah. And Uriah the Hittite, her husband, was a close friend of David's. And so he was one of David's 30 mighty men who fought with him before he ascended to the throne. So he would have known Uriah very, very well. They would have been blood, blood brothers of sorts. Uh, he, was, he was a foreign mercenary, he was a Hittite, but yet he was a part of, of David's core warriors who really uh, consistently put their life on the line uh, for, for David. And so this was not a seduction scene. You know, Bathsheba's in her house, she's taking a ritual bath to cleanse her from her monthly period. Um, but David is overwhelmed with lust for Uriah's wife and he calls for her and, and he sleeps with her. And so this is how it starts. But then after sin starts, it spreads quickly. A glance became a demand. And in reality, David was, I mean, we would, we would certainly term it more of a rape. This was, you know, Bathsheba didn't really have, didn't have any choice in the matter uh, in light of David's position and power. I mean, just remember, if you've read the book of Esther from the Old Testament, and Esther's reticence, her fear of going before the king just appearing to bring, you know, the issue of what was happening to her people, the Jews. And she didn't know whether she would be accepted or killed in that. I mean, that's, that's the, 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 the power of, of kings at that time was a sweeping thing. And so to deny it really would, could mean death for a person. And so David's advances were unwelcome. Um, we'd call it sexual harassment today. There's nothing in the text that reveals to us at all that this was something that um, that Bathsheba was, was looking for. And abusing power is really the original and the ultimate sin. In the fall in the, in the, fall in the Garden of Eden, is, it was all about Adam and Eve who wanted power. They wanted to set up a kingdom that would be in competition with the Lord's kingdom. They wanted to do their own thing. And sin is claiming power instead of submitting to God's power. Sin is ruling your own kingdom instead of living under God's rule. And at this moment, David cares nothing for God's kingdom. He is not in view. He's making the rules. Bathsheba sends word to David that she's pregnant, and then David begins a cover-up. And here's how sin continues uh, to, to, to spread. He calls Uriah off the field, to go home, sleep with his wife. Maybe that would end it. But Uriah's loyalty contrasts with David's betrayal. He's unwilling to sleep with his wife when his comrades are at war. Uh, and so he sleeps on a mat outside the royal residence. And then they, now David's scared, and so it escalates more. And, and so now he says, all right, we'll stick around. I'm going to have a banquet in your honor. And he gets him good and drunk. 
Um, but he still won't cooperate with the plan. It's amazing. Even, even, even in that state, who he was and the morality he lived according to, Uriah, Uriah was unwilling. Uh, he wouldn't give it up. And so David told Joab, now what am I going to do? I've got to cover this up. And so he tells Joab to place Uriah in the battle to ensure he's killed. And he actually sends the orders with Uriah, knowing full well that Uriah would not open up the, the wax seal on those and look and see that this was essentially his death sentence that he was carrying to Joab. And Joab puts Uriah in the most dangerous place in the battle. Uriah is killed. And then back home, Bathsheba learns that her husband is dead, and goes into a season of mourning, and then David calls for her and makes her his wife. And so the succession, this, this spread of sin, but now feels like thinks he's home clear. And so in one episode, David managed to violate the seventh commandment, adultery, the tenth commandment, coveting another's wife, and also uh, murder, the sixth commandment. I mean... You know, he's on a roll here in terms of knocking over the Ten Commandments. And once again, we see that the cover-up is always worse than the original sin. It's a cover-up. Um, the compounding in order to keep it under wraps, in order for others not to find out, in order to somehow deal with this thing is what becomes the biggest problem. And so sin, it starts small, and it spreads quickly, and as it does, it deepens our self-deception. We just, we just get lost in it, and really for David, all he could think about was what he had to do in order to not be in trouble with this stuff. That was his only, he wasn't thinking about right, wrong, God, whatever. He was thinking about what he needed to do. And, and the self-deception, I mean, the subtlety of sin is that it doesn't feel like sin when you're doing it, right? So David didn't feel like an adulterer. He felt like a lover. David didn't feel like a murderer. He felt like a king. And David deceived himself, you know, surely she'd have a better life with me. I mean, her husband doesn't really appreciate her for who she is. And, you know, I've got a very tough job. I'm leading the nation and surely, you know, that's enough to, you know, make up for whatever indiscretions uh, might be in my life. But there's a saying, good decisions make a good life and bad decisions make a bad life. And David made a succession of bad decisions, and he found himself, he found himself far, far from God's heart. And sin is always like that. It's just, it's a matter of degree. It's just like being, you know, in an airplane that just gets off a degree and then ends up far from the original target, the original goal. This is what was happening in his life. And last week, we talked about Saul's problem with insecurity and his self-deception, which divided his heart. Um, but the fact is that we're all masters of self-deception, and we're all masters of rationalizing the stuff that we want to do within our kingdom. In our kingdom, it's not that bad. No one is going to know. This won't hurt our relationship. Well, at least I'm not like that person, and it's harmless. But in God's kingdom, it is in fact that bad. So if we're talking about God and, and, his, and his ways and, 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 and the heart that he has called us to, it is that bad. And God does know, and it will hurt the relationship. And there's no sliding scale for sin. You can't say, well, at least I'm not a murderous pedophile, I'm not like that person, so I'm okay. That is not a biblical thought. And in fact, sin is always harmful. Sin has consequences. And David could make choices, but he could not 
choose the consequences that were connected to those choices. He could make choices, but he couldn't choose the consequences. Not even a king can do that. And the consequences connected to sexual sin, while there isn't a, you know, there isn't a, a hierarchy of sin, the fact is that sexual sin oftentimes uh, is, the, the consequences are particularly harsh. Particularly harsh. Violating a sacred trust, whether through an emotional affair, a sexual liaison, or technical infidelity through hiding lust, uh, destroys relationships beginning with a relationship with God. And so uh, being a person after God's heart, that isn't happening in the midst of that. And it also destroys our relationships with others. We think we can handle it. We're just going to dabble a little bit in this. We'll go this far and no farther. And surely David was thinking those things. But we can't manage sin. We can avoid sin, but we can't manage sin because there's something fundamentally wrong in our hearts. We just can't do it. And so once we get on that course, if there isn't something that interrupts that, we will continue headlong down that path. And so what's the solution? So what's the solution for sin? The end of 2 Samuel 11, it ties up very nicely, probably for a few moments. David thought he had it all wired. Uriah's dead. They're married. They've effectively covered up the fact that their child is not Uriah's, although that would have been a very poorly kept secret uh, within the court and also Jerusalem as well. They would have been kidding themselves <clears throat> if they, other people weren't putting all this stuff together. But that's part of the self-deception, right, that David was living in. But the fact was, more than anything else, God was witness. And the Bible says in this passage, the thing that David did had done displeased the Lord. And so he sent Nathan. He sent a prophet uh, who happened to be David's spiritual advisor as well as his friend. And throughout the Old Testament, we see that the prophets, they show up when there's trouble, right? And so if you read those prophets, last week, John Riemenschnitter and I, uh, one of the, our pastors on staff, uh, we were up in Vancouver taking a class at, at Regent College on Jeremiah and, and talking about the role of these prophets and the weeping prophet. I mean, Jeremiah's life, Ezekiel, Isaiah, I mean, when you read any of the prophets, it's like these guys had a rough time of it because they're always being thrown in as God's prosecuting attorney, essentially, whenever the nation had broken the covenant. And a lot of times the nation didn't want to hear about whether or not they had broken the covenant, but yet they were sent by God. And they were often, you know, sometimes they killed the prophets. Um, and so this is what Nathan's role is. Nathan is there as God's, you know, prosecuting attorney. He's going to present the covenant, the commandments, right? The Ten Commandments were part of that. And, um, and so he makes an appointment with David. And kings at that time adjudicated disputes oftentimes. Um, you see this in Solomon and other ones where there were some, um, some issue uh, and people would come and they would, you know, plead their case. And so Nathan brings a case for David to decide, beginning with 2 Samuel 12, 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had, he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. I shared with the other service, I kept thinking of, 
my dachshund, Abigail, here. <laughs> you sure you're not talking about dachshunds there, Nathan? Uh, probably not. Sorry. Um, then verse 4. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. And notice how Nathan did this. He didn't come in pointing his finger saying, you know, David, you're the man. It wasn't guns blazing. I mean, we see, we, we see a lot about how to confront a friend in the situation from the gentle way that Nathan comes, the gentle way but firm way. And he also, he knew David's heart. And he knew he had a shepherd's heart. And he knew that this, this story that he told was going to get under his skin in a huge way. Verse 5, David burned with anger against the man, and he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And once David, once he uttered the sentence, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Wow. There would have been a very pregnant pause, I think, except for David weeping at that moment. Now, Nathan goes on to describe to David the blessings that God, he talks about how God protected David in all the ins and outs with Saul as he ascended to the throne. And he talked about all the blessings to his family and to David personally that he had done. He was, he was a rich and wealthy man. Um, but David, he had so much, but he stole the only two things that Uriah cared about. Two things he cared about. He cared about his wife and he cared about his life. And David took both of those. And the consequences of David's sin, Nathan says, will be, it will be, it will be serious. There's going to be violence uh, in his household. There'll be betrayals. As we look at the story of David and his family after that, David was a very flawed father. And, you know, some of his sons ended up sleeping with his wives and concubines. And there was utter chaos in this family, this household. And Nathan also says he will be publicly disgraced. And so David had tried to keep this quiet, but God saw and God knew. And then God through Nathan says, David, you did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Before we comfort ourselves that we can just keep things down and quiet, we need to see here again that the truth comes out. I mean, the truth has a way of wiggling out. It may not be immediate, but at some point, it just, it just does. And so this is a warning to us as well. All right, so what's the solution for all of this? Well, first of all, one solution is a friend like Nathan. You need a friend like Nathan. Um, Nathan held David accountable for his actions, and he was a reliable witness. Nathan loved David, but he wasn't leveraged by David's power or the relationship. And so my question for you this morning is, do you have a Nathan in your life? Do you have a friend, do you have someone who you've given permission to speak into your life, to help you with the blind spots that we all live in, in our own level of self-deception? Do you have someone who loves you enough to be honest with you and say, you know what, um, hey, this is, this is wrong? Or even before that, it's like, wow, your mother just passed away, or, you know, uh, your work, I mean, you didn't get the promotion that you'd hoped for. How are you doing? You know, you know, is that affecting you? Have you, can I, you know, have you, have you sort of made peace of that with God? 
Because those are the kinds of things that kind of get in our hearts and bug us, and then we begin to fester and move away and move away from God. And so the setup for sin, and then even the sequence, how it goes, can be, it can be quickly halted if we have someone in our life, uh, a, a male friend, a female friend, someone who we've allowed to say that they can speak into our lives. And then the second question is, are you a Nathan? Are you, are you in a relationship with someone where you are speaking into their life? You know, as the proverb goes, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And, uh, you know, are you in a relationship where someone has given you permission? We call these accountability relationships today, but it, could, it doesn't have to be an official thing. It's just someone that you have a depth of a relationship with and you cut through all the baloney and you can really talk straight with each other. Um, crony relationships are worthless, okay? Just having a bunch of friends where there isn't really any depth to the thing, it's a, one way to go through life and just sort of, you know, use your time. But true friendships are based on truth, not on being, you know, buddies or such good friends um, that you confuse loyalty with apathy and dishonesty. And if you have a Nathan, if you don't have a Nathan, find one. And, and if you aren't a Nathan, become one. And I know you don't just go out and do this thing. I'd be, love to talk with you. If, you. if you're interested in a mentoring relationship, and we do this all the time, we try and bring people together just for the mutual community, the building up, the fellowship, that's real fellowship, not just sort of hanging about. Nathans can spot the setup for sin in our lives, and they can confront us as the sin is, is spreading. Another solution is, is true repentance. And this is, we see so clearly in this passage and in David's life. When confronted with the sin, David didn't rationalize. He didn't, you know, he knew he couldn't. And so he simply said, I have sinned against the Lord, period. Repentance is literally, in the original word, in, in, the, in the New Testament, it's a turning from and a turning to. It's not continuing on a path and saying, well, I want to feel better and I want God with me here. It's like, no. You're, you're, that's your kingdom. God's kingdom is you turn from that stuff and then you live under his reign. You, you submit to him. And so repentance is literally turning from sin to God. And David was repentant and he sought to return to an undivided heart in his relationship with the Lord. He yearned to be restored. And when we're truly repentant, at that point, we don't care about the consequences of being honest about it. We don't, we're not going to be stopped by the fact that we're going to be embarrassed by someone knowing or having to go and ask for forgiveness for something or to turn from something that might be very painful to do. We just don't care. We, we, want, to, we want to get right with, with the Lord. Psalm 51 is one of the Psalms that we know David wrote in response to an event in his life, and it's this event with Bathsheba. And it reveals authentic repentance. And so just to get a feel for this Psalm, let's read it together. But let's do it as a responsive reading. And so I'll, I'll start, I'll be the leader, you be the people, and we'll work our way through this corporate confession, uh, Psalm 51. And by the way, one of the things that we often miss and don't understand is that the Psalms were written to be read in community. So we, we read these individually, but they were written for communities like ours to actually read these things together. And it's, it's a way for us to purify our community, but it's also a way for us to understand our responsibility to each other in community. And so this is very faithful to the original intention. So let's read this together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. I know my transgressions. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Indeed, I was born guilty. You desire truth in the inward being. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Let me hear joy and gladness. Hide your face from my sins. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Do not cast me away from your presence. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. You have no delight in sacrifice. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. That is about as authentic as it can get, right? In terms of coming before the Lord and saying, Lord, I want to turn from my sin, God, and I want to turn, I want to turn toward you again. And I hope that, you know, the, the thing about, one of the things that I notice, and I notice it in my own life, but also just in, in meeting with people a lot, just as a pastor, is just like there's kind of this low level of just kind of flatness that we seem to live in. You know, when we read the Bible and we read about joy, you know, it's kind of like, what is that really like? I mean, the closest we get is, you know, when the Giants win or something, right? I mean, and I think that sports functions that way in our culture. It's like, yeah, that's when, but like just in terms of just joy, just you're just, you're just happy to be alive. You're, you're joyful in your relationships. Things are imperfect, but yet there's this elevation and this praise. I tell you, the reason we don't experience that very much is because we have this low-lying drag of sin in our life. And we don't, we don't take a psalm like this and just pray it. We don't work through with the Lord and, and confess. If we don't confess our sins to the Lord, then those things just remain, and it's pollution. It just pollutes our life. Reminds me of Los Angeles growing up there, right? I mean, you couldn't see the hills <laughs> from where I lived in Long Beach, but then the Santa Ana's would blow. It's like, oh, yeah, there's hills there. Wow. And it's the same, it's the same thing in our lives. It's like, wow, you know, I don't see... But then all of a sudden, the pollution's gone, and it's like, oh, I can see God's grace. That's why that psalm is so important. And so the solution to sin, being a Nathan, having a Nathan is important, repenting truly, and then finally, submit your power to God. Each of us possess a measure of power. The question is whether we will use it to extend God's kingdom or our own. And whether a husband or a wife whether you're a child or a parent, an employer or an employee, you have a measure of power over others. And if you use that power to serve yourself, you're building your kingdom. And a kingdom that is built by us is corrupted by the lust, the flesh, and the pride of life. It's just a corrupt kingdom. Any, if it's our kingdom and if it's not God's kingdom, then it will be corrupted. But if we use our power to serve others, Whatever their gender or race or, or the relationship 
that we have or don't have with them. You are serving God and building his kingdom. And I hate to oversimplify the incredibly complex issues in our country and our world today. I mean, I've, I've, been, I've been around for a long time, and I, I don't think I've ever, you know, I guess it's just getting old. It's never been like this, never been as bad as this. But it really is a mess, it seems like, today. And so what, what's really the solution to that? Well, the solution to that is people choosing to live under the reign of God, ultimately, the solution to that is the change of a person's heart. Otherwise, we'll, we'll, we will work, and you know, I think all the efforts are important, but ultimately they'll fall short. And for us, if we want to be on the, on, on the side of, of God, we've got to be operating in his kingdom with his values and honoring him, not just going off in terms of what we think and what we value. Submit your power to God. So this is a very fitting Sunday for us to take communion, isn't it? Um, God said through Nathan, uh, even though there were plenty of consequences to David's sin, he said, the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die, which is amazing. David had done some really awful things, and yet God forgave him. God extended his mercy to David. The consequences were there. But yet he, ex- he extended his mercy despite his grievous sin. And God does the same to us. In Romans chapter 3, it says, for all have sinned, and we all fall short of God's glory. We, none of us make it. And so this idea of like having a hierarchy of sin, you know, everybody falls short. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That's the welcome. That's the great news. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement for our sin through the shedding of his blood and to be received by faith. When we come together and we take the bread and the cup, we are celebrating again uh, those, those symbols of how grace came to us. Jesus Christ, an atoning sacrifice, in other words, it's substitutionary. He replaced us with that. He took that for us. And in so doing, we're freed from fear and we're freed from fear by his forgiveness. It doesn't matter what we've done. If we come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, there may still be consequences to that sin, but yet the Lord puts that sin away and we do not die. Our lives may waste away uh, in this life. Our bodies may waste away, but our soul, our spirit is alive unto God and Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ is for, for eternity. And so when we take communion, we celebrate that great truth that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us, and then I invite you to come up to the front and uh, take the elements, and then take them back to your seat. Let's pray. Father God, we are, <clears throat> we are str- struck, truly. I don't think there's a story in all the Bible that could create a greater contrast for us, God, in terms of the depths of sin, and yet, Father, the the extension of the glories of your grace. It's amazing, Lord. We're reminded once again that all of these things come from you, not from us. We're incapable of working for these things or earning any of it. We've been, it's been given to us freely. We, just, we need to accept it. And then, Father, we need, to, we need to live in it. And, Father, as we accept the Lord Jesus Christ in the forgiveness that is there, Lord, then we, we walk in his footsteps and we form our life in his. And what we see in his life is this 
man who laid down his rights for us. And so, Father, may we lay down our rights for others, and especially whatever rights we might think that we have um, to some form of, of, of selfishness or, or sin, but that, Lord, we would see ourselves truly as his ambassador and reconciler according to what he has done. So, Father, we thank you that Jesus died for us. We're thankful for the bread and the cup, symbolic of his body and blood, offered for us. Uh, Father, his, his death and resurrection is the means of our salvation. We love the Lord Jesus, and Father, we, we ask that we would be able to attain in some way um, to the grace that he has extended to us. Thank you, Father, for this time to worship. Uh, and Father, guide us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.